biker gangs, corner pubs, college sororities, when they're all full of people who just look and behave the same, then we don't recognize the gospel is promoting that unity. Hey everyone, welcome to What in the World. My name is Jake Lee and I am your host of this podcast. And today we are going to be listening to part two of an interview I got to have with Dr. Peter Borg. And in the last episode, we talked all about a specific incident that happened to Stuart and Jill Briscoe early on in their ministry with Elmbrook and how that incident ended up shaping a lot of Elmbrook moving forward and really had a big impact on the church. Today's episode, we are going to dive more into that ripple effect and also dive into some practical takeaways for us and as a church moving forward. So if you haven't gone back and listened to the first episode, please do that because that really sets the stage for this episode and we dive right in in this episode just picked up right where we left off last time the other thing i wanted to talk about before we actually dive into the interview though is i want to keep encouraging anyone listening to this to please help us get it in front of more people because this podcast the heartbeat behind it is one we want people to be aware of what god is doing But we also really want to be encouraging people to step into that, be part of building this kingdom that God is building. So the way you can do that is really by commenting, by rating this podcast, and by sharing it and getting it in front of other people. We want more people to hear this podcast, not so it becomes popular, but also that people can really be equipped to be kingdom builders. And now, right before we dive into the podcast, the last thing I have for you is another cultural blunder story, and this time it's from me. So in 2015, I was in China in the Northwest region, and I had made a friend on a college campus. I believe his English name was Jack. We wanted to do something fun, and so we decided that we're gonna go out and have some tea, like go to a tea tasting shop. So I'd already lived in China before this, and so I'd experienced some things culturally. I knew a decent amount about Chinese culture. I was like, but I've never really gone to a tea shop. I never really felt the urge or wanted to do that, I guess. But I was like, this is going to be a cool experience. I'll check out a tea shop with this new friend I have. And so we went in and it it was a normal tea shop. It was pretty nice. And we sat in the back and the host came over and he was asking what I wanted. And I'm like, "Uh, you choose. I don't know a ton about tea. And so I kind of let the student take the lead at this time, too. I was obviously assuming the student, you know, he he's a college student here, but I was assuming he knew kind of the lay of the land, what was a good tea shop, and that's where he took me. And so from that point, we just sat, we chatted, we talked about life, and we continued to sip this tea that the hostess kept smiling and then pouring more and more into our cups. And the cups were really tiny, like, I'm showing you with my hands right now, but that doesn't help, you can't see my hands. The size of maybe a ping pong ball height, but a little wider on the top, like it doesn't cut back in like in a ping pong ball. So it's about that size, these little tiny cups, and we're just sipping tea. And then we eventually get to the end and we're like, okay, we're kind of done. We want to go back now. And so we stand up and we walk up and we're like, Do Shao Qian, how much does this cost? And to our horror, the person says 400 yuan, which this is a ton of money for a college student. If you kind of break it down, it's about 60, 70, probably about $70 US, which for a few cups of tea is absolutely outrageous. This student felt mortified and I felt terrible because we had gone to this shop. I hadn't checked the prices. I'm in a new shop. I don't know it. I should have looked at it. I just made the assumption that this student knows where to go. And what he probably did is 
he might have not known any tea shops in the area, so he took me to the nicest one he could find, which ended up being a very expensive one. And then I just quickly jumped in front of the student and paid because I did not want this student to have to take this very large hit. And I knew like I could absorb it a lot better than he could. In retrospect, that actually may have been very shaming. And obviously I didn't want to do that to my brand new friend to make him feel inadequate. Like he took me to a tea shop and then I won't even let him pay. And so all of these things were going through my mind. What do I do? And it was just a mess because one, we should never have gone into that tea shop. If we did, I should have checked the price. Probably should have just let my new friend pay, even though it was a lot of money for him because I would have saved him his honor and not shamed him. And so this was just a really terrible experience for me and one I've learned from, obviously. But fortunately, after this, uh, this new friend did have, what do you want to call it, grace on me? That the fact that I had jumped in front of him and paid, we were still able to maintain our new friendship and hang out. And so in the end, it wasn't a terrible incident, but it could have gone really bad because you should know enough about the culture and understand what is going to cause people um, hurt and going to um, maybe offend them. And I did not act like that when I jumped in front of the student. And obviously, even before that, I should have been more prepared when it comes to going into a tea shop. So this has been one of Jake's cultural blunders. So you're saying you saw Stuart and Jill really trying to push the congregation, to push Elmbrook into kind of a broader understanding of what it means to live missionally at home. I feel we have a really... I don't even want to say it like this, have a deep understanding of what it means to like wanting to go to the ends of the earth. Maybe have like maybe a head knowledge of it. And some people catch the heart knowledge and then they want to go. Right. But then you see a disconnect um, of it expressed locally. And I think that's because if you've never caught the heart knowledge to go overseas, you've also never caught the heart knowledge to want to love your neighbors who are close to you and are different from you. Right. Part of my job is I'm at a James place, which we'll talk about those in the future at some point, um, at the Barack Obama School of Career Technological Education in inner city Milwaukee. And it's interesting because all of my volunteers, very few people can cut it there, I would say. They have to have the certain mindset to be able to thrive and do well in that school and connect with the students and the teachers. And almost always the ones who succeed there are ones who have spent time overseas, ones who have caught the passion for wanting to see the gospel cross cultures. And that's the thing, Elmbrook, we get that, but especially when it comes to applying at our home front, we really struggle with that. I think that's part of what Stuart and Jill were trying to push Elmbrook in, but I mean, the fact that zero people showed up to a church obviously showed the church's immaturity at that point. But even from that point, how much progress do you think we've even made from what you've seen over those next couple decades? Well, I'm going to answer that a little bit circuitously, if you don't mind. Go for it. So shortly after sharing that story during the interview, they shared that a family at the time who were long time at that point, even members of Elmbrook called the Couchmans. Okay. I know her name was Wynn. I don't know what her husband's name was. During the 70s, there was kind of a, a Christian hippie a group called the Jesus People. And they had been having Jesus People meeting in their living room. Stuart uh, and Jill found this out and asked them if they would please bring this huge contingent of people to a Sunday night service at Elmbrook. And so one night, a hundred Jesus people (laughs) show up at Elmbrook. And so, you know, you've got kind of a suit and tie crowd that's typically attending at Elmbrook, right? Uh, Elmbrook, prior to building the first iteration on the site that they're on on Barker Road right now, 
they had had two services every day, one that had been, or every Sunday rather, one that would meet at the church, which was kind of this button-down crowd, and another that would meet at the Ruby Isle Theater that didn't mind chewing gum on the bottom of a, you know, of a theater uh, seat, but really was curious about who Jesus was and didn't necessarily want to go into a church, but they didn't mind hearing a, a sermon in a, in a movie theater. You've got these two different groups, and at this one point, 100 Jesus people show up uh, on an evening when there are about 250 other people there. And I have to read this quote directly to you because I would get it wrong otherwise. And Stuart says, that was a challenge having these Jesus people show up because I had never heard of the John Birch Society. Um, And the John Birch Society, if people who are listening are members of it, that's fine. That's your political kind of affiliation. But a lot of people who were members of the John Birch Society, very conservative politically, had come because Elmbrook initially was a conservative Baptist church and, and you know, moved away from that within the first uh, 10, 15 years. He said, after that evening, uh, a man came up to him and said, on Sunday morning, you intentionally brought into our church the kind of people we have worked long to protect our children from. Wow. It's disheartening, right? Because mm-hmm. they're wearing maybe bell bottoms and beads and have long hair, but they're there because they love Jesus and they're following him. And here's someone else who loves Jesus and says, we're trying to protect our children from people who follow Jesus. You know, it it shows how easy it is as humans for us to concentrate on the exterior um, rather than get to know someone well enough to figure out what's going on in their heart and then decide whether our children should be near them. (laughs) Right. You, You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this gentleman had had said to Stuart, you know, I really have to talk to you on Sunday morning, you intentionally brought into our church the kind of people that we have worked long and hard to protect our children from. He said to Stuart, what are you doing to our church? And so Stuart took that and stayed and talked. And by the end of that gathering, they had worked out that they're going to have a special Sunday school class called Generation Bridge. And they're going to invite representatives of older people and younger people to meet together for three months and to study the book of James together. And it was such a hit that that first group kept meeting, and then other people heard about it and wanted to start meeting together. And then there were at least three iterations that Stuart and Joe could remember of, of these generation bridge Hmm. classes meeting together with older and younger, uh, and eventually the older people asking these younger adults, help us understand our teenagers and how do we parent them better? And so it was this really good connection. And then there's this one particular story. And then Stuart says, and uh, there was this guy named Tom Perucci, who was part of this group of younger folks. Stuart says he was a long-haired kid. He was from Marquette. He'd come from a tra- traditional, devout Italian Catholic family out east. He'd been in the drug scene. He'd probably been pushing drugs. And he came to faith through the Couchman's ministry in their home. And he got involved at Elmbrook and he wanted to be a member. So they put him through the pre-membership class. And by the end of it, he says, I'm ready. I want to become a member. He said, when I become a member, I'd like to say something to the congregation. Could I do that? And Stuart says, well, yes. And one of the deacons overheard this and said, did, he, did you say yes? And Stuart said, what's he going to say? The deacon said, what's he going to say? And Stuart said, I don't know. And the deacon said, well, what if he says something inappropriate? And Stuart says, well, then he'll be corrected. Uh, And if he says it in public, we'll correct him in public. And then we'll all learn from it. And so we did. Tom came to membership, and this is what he said. He said, quote, There are some wonderful people from Elmbrook who came down on the Marquette campus and befriended me and told me about Jesus. And I came to faith. And they told me about this wonderful church out in the suburbs. And I was so excited to come. And I have to tell you that my first visit here to Elmbrook 
was the biggest disappointment of my life. I was met by hostility. I could just tell it by the way people reacted to me, the way they looked at me. He said, I didn't fit. And I was deeply resentful. And I've become a member of this church tonight. And I'm here to confess my resentment of many of you from that day on. That resentment is sin. And I've confessed it to the Lord and he's forgiven me of my sin. And now I confess it to you. I trust you will also forgive me. But I want to say this. You also need to repent. Wow. Powerful stuff, right? And Stuart and Jill said that was a big turning point in the church. Somebody could say, look, you didn't accept me because of the way I looked. He had the bravery to speak out and say something about it. Because he had the bravery to speak out and say something about it, everybody benefited, right? And that makes me think a lot about the current situation we're in. There are a lot of white people in America who are, I think because they've been stuck at home with COVID, um, not with it, but because of it, uh, and have more time to think and watch and listen, are starting to recognize that for 400 years, this country's had a problem. By and large, white people and white churches have let racism go by the wayside because it didn't affect them. But then there's another set of people who are offended by anyone who tries to make a connection between scripture and racism or Jesus and racism or the Bible you know, and what, what a church is supposed to do. But Elmbrook grew that night because someone who looks different than everybody who was paying the pastor's salary and keeping the lights on at the church and paying the mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, right? Someone who was different from all those people stood up and said, I'm different and you let me know I'm different. And that's not biblical. The whole church grew as a result. And how much more might we grow nowadays if we're willing to, like James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Hmm. You know, there's a lot of wisdom uh, in that. I've got kids who are 21 through 12, four of them. Those words come out of my mouth a lot when I'm talking to them about how they reacted to one of their siblings or how they reacted to my wife or I. Next time, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because then we might end up responding differently if we do that listening part first rather than, you know, jump into a conclusion or trying to defend myself or, you know, whatever it might be. So your initial question was, how has Elmbrook grown from that experience in 1971 or 72? I moved to Milwaukee in 1996, began attending Eastbrook shortly after that, became a member, really had nothing to do with Elmbrook. It was years before I recognized that Elmbrook had planted Eastbrook, because uh, at that point, members of Elmbrook who lived on the east side started Eastbrook, and Elmbrook gave his blessing uh, in 1979. You know, I, I knew of no connection between the two churches, but grew to understand there was a, a much bigger connection when Citybrook which was meeting in cafeteria of Washington High School in Sherman Park, just a few blocks from where I live, we wanted to uh, be good tenants of the school. And so we asked the principal, is there anything we can do around here that would be a, a benefit to you? And, and they said, well, why don't you spend a Saturday morning cleaning up outside and planting flowers? We, we learned in, in the aftermath of all this, they never expected us to show up and do that. But we did. We showed up and did it. And so we said, what else can we do? They say, well, would you mind holding a staff appreciation breakfast on a, you know, a teacher work day when no students are in the building, but teachers still have to show up? A couple of people organized that and everybody brought coffee and bagels and fruit salad and you know, whatever. And then finally they said, we've got one part-time college guidance counselor. We've got over 800 students. Uh, one of the things that our students miss out on is, you know, help with ACT prep and SAT prep and, and things like that. Could you guys start doing 
something along those lines. And we started to feel like, oh, maybe we need to, to loop in some other believers in the Milwaukee area because we were a small congregation. We brought in Tom Kepler and Mike Murphy, who at the time were both doing missions. Uh, Mike was focused on local missions and Tom was over the whole missions program at Elmbrook and said, can you guys help us brainstorm you know, what this might look like? What started as some of our members showing up to the library you know, every other week to tutor kids in, uh, take the ACT, for instance, ended up with the school giving us permanent space in the building with Elmbrook and Eastbrook's uh, financial help, allowing us to hire someone full-time to run what was then called James Place based off of the name of the thing that started in Waukesha County as like a blood pressure testing center or something like this, you know, something kind of disconnected from an urban school. And if I'm not mistaken, Ashley Thomas, who now runs Hope Street, was our first James Place coordinator at Washington High School. Mm-hmm. You know, the James Place model in Milwaukee Public Schools has grown uh, into other schools. You know, I think that there is a um, an understanding by people in leadership at Elmbrook and by some of the congregants that we have an opportunity to love people in a whole variety of different ways that align with scripture. For some people, one of them is coming in and helping with tutoring or helping people reacclimate to life after coming out of the criminal justice system or, you know, whatever it may be. Institutionally, the church is, you know, it recognizes that there are possibilities for being involved in what Tim Keller calls generous justice. That's his uh, biblical mandate of it. Um, that God's justice to us is extravagant, and we have the ability to to be similarly extravagant and generous with our justice to other people. You know that, that that there are ways to live that out, even if you don't live directly near what someone might term material need. For me, it's cool to hear you talking about James Place being an outpouring of kind of that desire to move toward people who are different than us to see the gospel. Uh, what was what did Tim Keller call it again? What was it? Uh, the title of his book is called Generous Justice. Generous Justice. So I really like that because I part of my job is working at one of those schools with James Place, and it's been really cool to see just that kind of model grow and see, honestly, so many Elmbrookers start volunteering and changed through that experience. Oh, yeah. It's the funny thing, you know, you always think like, oh, we're going to help someone. It's like, no, in reality, you're going, so you're going to change and become more like Jesus. That's the yeah. continual story we get over and over. But what I'd like to ask you now is, is like you're kind of talking about how Elmbrook continued to push into that, even with seeing progress, seeing a congregation realize it needs to repent, seeing uh, James Place birthed um, in multiple different expressions around the Milwaukee area, we still have a long way to go. Why in the world? In this part of the podcast, we look at our motivations, our heartbeat, the why behind what we do. Why press forward? Why continue enduring in hardship? Why keep working when you don't see the results that you expected or felt you were promised? And that's exactly what we are going to look into today. In the early 2000s, two missionaries in Russia befriended a man named Sergei. They got to know this man, invested tons of time and energy into this relationship, shared their hearts and the gospel with him, but he never responded to it. After all this time and energy had been poured into this relationship and someone that they deeply cared about, the missionaries needed to return home with heavy hearts, knowing that their friend was not destined for an eternity with Christ, 
that he had chosen to continue living his life in a different way. Many times missionaries go onto the field expecting to see massive movements erupt, expecting to see hundreds if not thousands of people come to know the Lord, to see entire tribes and countries transformed. And yes, this is something that we want to see, we pray for, we long to see. And in some cases it happens, but in others, the soil is hard. Missionaries spend their entire life trying to plow a field that bears no fruit. There are stories of missionaries with maybe one convert. There are stories of people who spend their entire lives longing to see a people come to know Jesus, to see their lives transformed and none turn to him. The desire to see others come to know Jesus is a good godly desire. Does God owe us success? Does he owe us the right to see people come to know him, to see lives transformed, to see people turned from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Is my life wasted if I spend my whole life proclaiming the name of Jesus and I never get to see anyone come to know him? Was my life in vain? No. In the Bible, Jesus talks that some are called to sow, some are called to water, and some are called to reap. Some are called to reap the harvest, to see the fruit, and others have to work the hard soil. God does not owe us for the life we spend that he has to show us results. A life is not wasted if converts are not seen. A life simply seeking God's glory, even if nothing else happens, is honoring to God. Now let's go back to the missionaries who spent their time in Russia and had to leave with heavy hearts knowing that their friend that they had poured time and energy into had not come to faith. A few years later, they returned back to Russia and found with great delight that this friend, Sergei, had accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, had been transformed, had new life. And when he saw them again, this is what he said. My friends, I know that you lived and worked here for a long time, and sometimes you wondered if it was worth it. You maybe didn't get to see all that you wanted to see, but because you came, I now have Jesus, and because I have Jesus, I have eternal life. So I want you to know that even if it was just for me, your time here was worth it. A life spent seeking to share the glory of God and to honor God is never wasted. This is Ben. Why in the world? What I'd like to end on is just kind of what are some things that maybe you'd like to see Elmbrook as a whole start to step into and also as individuals listening on this podcast because we're all collectively part of Elmbrook. Mm-hmm. What can I do? What can an individual do listening to this podcast? What is a step that we can take individually and as a church? You know, coming back to Jesus's prayer in John 17 about this idea of being unified, the world doesn't recognize unity when it's a bunch of people who are similar. You know, biker gangs, corner pubs, college sororities, when they're all full of people who just look and behave the same, then we don't recognize the gospel as promoting that unity. So I think the first thing people need to do is this kind of a, an honest, realistic assessment of their own lives. You know, poke your head out your front door and look up and down your block or up and down the apartment hallway or condo hallway that you live in. Is there anybody that is different from you in any significant way 
in your neighborhood or in your building? Is there anybody who's different from you when you get together for a barbecue before there was, you know, a pandemic? Or look at the kids who show up to your kid's birthday party or who are on their youth sports team or in their scout troop or something. Are you living a life that is essentially being surrounded by people who are really a lot like you? Like I said before, they look like you, they earn like you, they vote like you, they live near where you live. If you are, then take some steps to change that. And it it can start off pretty simple. If you're meeting someone for coffee, maybe don't meet them on Blue Mound in Brookfield. Maybe meet them for coffee at Mayfair Mall. Maybe meet them for coffee at a Colectivo over on the east side. Make some, some small, deliberate steps to begin surrounding yourself with people who don't have a life experience that's exactly like yours. You know, what? what's the next step? Maybe the next step is what youth sport league your kids play in. You know, I live blocks from the park known as Sherman Park, not the neighborhood. And there's the Beckham Stapleton Little League there. What does it look like if rather than your kid playing in an Elmbrook Little League team, your kid plays at youth baseball at Beckham Stapleton? What does it look like for you every once in a while to attend a church that's not Elmbrook, that is in fact, you know, an all African-American church or a Hispanic church or a Hmong congregation? You know, you know, those are all just kind of small steps that I think people can take to place themselves in a position where they can begin to recognize and they can hear the Holy Spirit say to them, huh, there are different ways to interpret this passage of scripture. Maybe the way I've always interpreted it could be corrected. Somewhat. You know, I'll end with this, Jake. Before we were recording, you asked me what I'm reading right now. Mm-hmm. And one of the books I'm reading right now is called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written that he became a Christian as a result of spending a year in New York City attending an all black Baptist church in Harlem, even though he was at Union Theological Seminary, which was connected to a very wealthy white church called Riverside Church. Uh, that was right near Columbia University. He became a Christian because he recognized at Absissian Baptist Church in Harlem that scripturally, Jesus actually associated with the oppressed, not with those in power. And that was transformative for his personal relationship with Jesus. It was also transformative because if he hadn't done that, none of us today would know who he was. But siding with the oppressed is what gave him the courage to go back to Germany and to stand up to the Nazis and to stand up to Hitler and to lose his life for doing so. All happened because he broke out of his comfort zone of being around people who were exactly like him, began to fellowship with people who were different. And by doing so, scripture was opened up to him in a way that he never imagined it would be. So I think there's great hope for us, even though it's scary, even though it's uncomfortable, even though we might say the wrong thing, or we might go someplace where our car might get broken into, who knows what's gonna happen, But if the cause is to go ahead and better know God by knowing people who are different from us and who may know him through different life experiences, I think that's worth it. I love that. I love this idea of proximity of just, are you associating and getting close to people who think differently than you and how that can shape your theology, how that can shape your way of thinking? I mean, we live in a very Western theological environment for my audience like and I have too I grew up in that I was raised in that and it's crazy that every time I've talked to somebody who's from a different culture it helps you start to understand and expand your understanding and you just look at Jesus for a second his ministry what was one of his main critiques it was the fact that he associated with people who were different 
people that didn't fit the Pharisees and the normal good Jewish person. He was with prostitutes, with tax collectors. One of his own disciples was a radical and the other one was a tax collector. One was with the government, one was trying to fight it. Like when you look at his life and who he surrounded himself with, if we're meant to model Jesus, that means we need to be around people who are different than us. So I really appreciate the perspective you're giving. I've learned a lot about Elmbrick. So thank you for filling in some of those gaps for me and for anyone listening to this. So in conclusion, I just wanted to say thank you. Is there any final thing you want to say before we wrap up? Oh, it's just been a pleasure to, to talk with you. Um, I'm more than willing to uh, have phone conversations or appropriately socially distance physical conversations with people if, they're, uh, you know, if their interest has been piqued at all by uh, our, our discussion. And so you've got my contact information. You can give that to them um, if they'd like it. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to another episode of What in the World. Um, I just want to say thanks again to Dr. Peter Borg for taking the time to sit down with me and to dive into some of his research. And obviously there's a ton more that he has written down in interviews he's dealt with. And even Stuart and Jill's interview, it was a very long interview that we barely touched on. If you are interested and want to learn more about that, let me know and I can get you in touch with uh, Dr. Peter Borg. But I also wanted to talk about that. I know this podcast may have had some people feeling uncomfortable, and I wanted to say that's okay. It's okay to not always see eye to eye on things or maybe to disagree on things. But if this was something that caused a very strong emotional reaction, I want to just ask you the question, why? And maybe ask yourself that. Why did this cause such a strong emotional reaction? I would just really encourage you to do that. And also dive into scripture about what was said in this podcast and what every podcast that um, has been released so far and moving forward. If we say something, look at what scripture says. See if it lines up with scripture or not. That's a very healthy practice that is encouraged in the Bible and one that I need to go back to all the time. The times we live in aren't going to get any simpler, but I also wanted to encourage people that in the time of the early Christians and even the time the Bible was written, there were so many issues that were trying to rip the church apart, that were trying to divide the church. There's a reason there's so much scripture in the New Testament that talk about unity. Jesus talked about it all the time, but then other writings from the apostles to the churches talking about them needing to figure out how to work together, how two cultures are supposed to be in the same church, how Gentile and Jew are supposed to love each other, how this unity is supposed to be present in the body of Christ. And this pursuit of unity is a lot of what we're trying to get at in this last podcast is this idea that it's not just even Elmbrook that needs to be unified because we a lot of times think in our tiny bubble of wanting to just unify our, our small congregation. But the reality is it's the body of Christ, the large body, the, the one that spans across Wisconsin, that spans across the United States, that spans across the world. We're trying to see unity in that. And right now, especially, we don't see that. We see fractures all over the place. And so that's something we want to continue to pursue is this unity with people in the body who look and act and maybe think a little differently than me, but we all have this commonality in Jesus. We all have this same reliance on the scriptures, on God. And that's what we need to lean into is that what unifies us so we can be able to appreciate the differences that God has put in us so we can continue to grow. Now back to a normal kind of podcast talk. Uh, The next podcast is going to be all about Bible translation. And then after that, we're dealing with some redemptive stories of people and how Elmbrook was part of their redemptive journey. 
and in this next case, part of redeeming a family. I'm really excited for that. I hope you guys are as well. Once again, comment, rate, share the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of What in the World.